Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, sincerely for joining me here on The Tully Show. I think you're going to agree the conversation you are about to listen to between myself and economist Noah Smith is interesting, thought-provoking, informative, and just a good old-fashioned solid hang to boot. Before we get into that, real quick, let me ask you something. Do you need new podcasts in your life? Are you sick of the old ones? Are you just spending like more time in the car than you used to? Has it occurred to you if you need more pods that what you need is just way more of this? At this point, I'm posting telly shows on pretty much a bi-weekly basis, at least for the time being, but I'm still putting up, let's say at least 10, 10 Patreon-exclusive podcasts every single month. If you like the different directions this show goes in, I go in all these directions and more, 10 times a month or more plus high def video which i don't like to brag but i'm going to it looks pretty freaking awesome join us we're having lots of fun there and we'd love for you to join us patreon.com slash mike tully patreon.com slash mike tully Live on tape from an above ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous Hollywood sign. This is the Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, an economist, a rabbit enthusiast, and an emerging Substack superstar. Hello and welcome, Noah Smith. Hey, thanks for having me on, man. Thank you very much for joining me. First things first, you know, something that I, I think all in all, when I add it all up in my mind, something that I like about the Substacks and mediums of the world, given that I'm really just dipping my toe in that in that world of the direct-to-consumer journalism or, or academics or whatever you want to call it, is it sort of lacks context. And I like I like that with a band. I like you just don't don't tell me the backstory. Don't let me see the picture. I might dislike the singer's face, and then I'm, it's over before it started. Just let me get the content and judge it judge it on its merits. I ha, I I've spent a decent amount of time with your work. I I have almost no idea who you are and what you do. And I kind of dig that, but for my benefit and for the benefit of anyone who, who listen to this, who are you, Noah? I'm actually an actor. I, uh, <laughs> I've been hired to play the part of Noah Smith. There uh -huh. actually is no real person, Noah Smith. It was invented by the economist Brad DeLong from Berkeley to uh, give voice to his, you know, less, um, uh, less respectable opinions and, uh, you know, more wild out there ideas. Well, they picked the right guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, uh, I, uh, <laughs> well, who am I? I just, um, I'm just a guy who writes an economics blog. I went to economics grad school, had a blog there. I was a professor for a couple of years at Stony Brook. Um, didn't really like academia at all. Um, and then was just doing this blogging thing and then, uh, people decided to start paying me to do it. So that's a difficult thing to turn down. Um, you know, I could have a, I could have like a corporate desk job and, argue with my boss all day, but you know, instead I sit around blogging about the, you know, stuff, fun stuff. Well, the, I mean, the, the thing is, I, I don't, I don't presume to know your business better than you do, but in a roundabout sort of way that you, you, you've almost lined yourself even better for that desk job 
because now you're now you, if should you ever choose to fall back on that, you know, your resume pops in the way that another uh, uh, more steady career long desk jockeys resume would. So in a roundabout sort of way, you've actually this is perfect. You can still get that job. Hmm. I'll, I'll let's uh, let's table that for now. Yeah, I'm I'm pulling for you real quick before yeah. <laughs> we get into the economic stuff. What's your deal with rabbits? What's so great? Oh, about rabbits. Uh, well, you know, my whole life I uh, I had cats and dogs, and I really love cats and dogs. Um, they're great pets. Uh, you know, I'm, I I don't believe that you're either a cat person or a dog person because I'm both. And then, um, you know, it was time for me to get some new pets, and I I decided to try something different. I decided, you know, a couple of my friends had gotten rabbits, and so I learned that. Uh, you know, my whole life, I thought rabbits weren't toilet trained. You know, I thought they would just poop on the floor. I thought, I do not want a pet that poops all over the floor. That's that's stupid. Um, I mean, like a rat will poop on the floor. A guinea pig will poop on the floor. A hamster will poop on the floor if you let them out. So you have to keep them in a cage. Rabbits, I discovered, are not like that. Rabbits are very easy to litter train, and they're very clean, you know, neat animals who will poop in the litter all the time. And uh, all you have to do is put the litter box next to the hay feeder and they litter train themselves. And um, and so when I discovered that, I was like, wow, OK, so having a rabbit could actually be viable. And I, you know, I met my friend's rabbits and they were nice little critters and I liked them. Uh, they're basically like basically vegan cats, I think. They're pretty similar to cats. So what you're saying is this whole time we've been force fed uh, a dog cat dichotomy. When in reality, because that's what it comes down to is you're not going if you don't want a cage pet or an outdoor pet, then you have to have a house trained pet. And I think turtles, exactly. turtles can often pull. I know somebody who used to habitually let a gigantic tortoise into their house. I just assume they weren't letting it poop everywhere. OK, thank you. That's that, beyond my knowledge. That's a terrific answer. And that's actually actionable knowledge, I'm sure, for I know there's at least one person who's going to listen to this who is a, a rabbit owner. So you're not telling her anything she doesn't know. Economics is a big field. What would you say is your sweet spot? In economics? Well, I mean, you know, I I started off studying macroeconomics and quickly realized that nobody actually knew anything. You know, um, macroeconomics, you know, doesn't have very much power to describe the the world. Um, You know, people try and people try their best and they learn a bunch of facts about the macroeconomy, but facts and explanations are not the same thing. And so, uh, you know, I got out of macroeconomics and basically my blog was about this. It was essentially started off as a blog about how annoyed I was by macroeconomics. And um, and that I blogged about that for like, you know, about five years, um, four or five years. And so uh, but after that, I switched to to behavioral finance stuff. Uh, So, you know, finance stuff, but also uh, mixing like irrationality in with it. That's really fun and important stuff. And I think that that's like a big, important area of research. And then, um, you know, but now as a blogger, I just cover everything, you know, um, uh, minimum wage, immigration, international trade, development of poor countries and blah, blah, blah. You know, all these all these things, taxes and everything. And um, and so basically now I just cover it all environmental economics. And so, you know, the, the my my training allows me to quickly understand how the researchers in any field are getting the results that they're getting instead of just sort of taking the results at face value. So I think that's a valuable thing. And it allows me to sort of know where the good research is and where the not very good research is, which is also important. And, um, and it, you know, my, my network sort of, I know a ton of economists and that lets me keep track of, of what the research is in the field. And that sort of gives me an edge there too, 
so you know that's uh that's that's pretty useful so i think you know just just writing about economics without the uh you know grad school background would be more difficult i think I, I mean this as a compliment i honestly i don't know mm. if i've ever done I like it already i honestly don't know if i've ever done less prep to speak to somebody who's written a book about something or is an expert in a field. And I mean that as a compliment because I started going through your Twitter feed, which is usually just how I get started. And I was like, oh, I want to know about that. I want to know about that. I want to know about that. And I just basically jotted down like the last five things that you tweeted. And that to me is more than ample fodder for a conversation I think everyone will enjoy. But before I get into the stuff you've been blogging and tweeting about most recently, you first came to my attention because of a, a tweet that ended up in my feed, a very simple tweet that said, American teenagers were happiest in the mid to late O's. And that was accompanied by by a graph. Uh, and that, that, I don't know if, what the actual threshold is for virality. That seemed like it went fairly viral. Um, I just have a bunch of questions about that. Teens were happiest in about 20 years ago give or take. First of all, what prompted you to ask the question, are teens as happy nowadays as they used to be? When were they happiest? Oh, um, because all this data is coming out about teenage depression. In fact, Derek Thompson, who's the guy who got me into sort of punditry and, and you know, uh, paid writing, he, um, he wrote a really interesting post uh, today about uh, teen sort of depression. And, you know, the, the teens are sad. And I can think of lots of reasons for the teens to be sad, you know, um, but I thought, OK, when when were teens not sad? You know, because when I was a kid in the 90s, I remember, you know, everybody like kids would listen to depressing music and like, I don't know, cut their arms and do heroin and commit suicide. And it was terrible. Like yes. people were just really down. Um, and so I remember that. And then um, so I thought, OK, when were teens happy? So I went and looked at the data. And so, okay, so there, actually after the 90s, there was this like rise in happiness. Teens became happy and were happiest around like the, you know, um, uh, you know, late 2000s or like early 2010s, right, right around the Obama years, uh, which is odd because, you know, we had the Great Recession. And yeah, of course, kids don't have jobs. Uh, some, a few kids have jobs, mostly not. But then, uh, you know, then, then the parents were certainly falling on hard times. And, you know, lots of people lost their houses and you'd think it wouldn't be a time for, uh, you know, widespread teen happiness. And yet it was. And so I thought, OK, what the heck is going on there? Um, and so then I, I, I don't have a full answer to like why it changed afterwards. There's a lot of competing theories, which I could talk about. But it's interesting that this time between when between the years when I was, uh, you know, young and the years when I was like old enough to start knowing all this data. But in those years, there was there were actually a bunch of happy teens. And in fact, I remember, you know, on the rare occasions when I would interact with teenagers during that time, they all seemed pretty well adjusted and happy. I thought, oh, wow, the world's getting better. You know, like things are getting better. The Internet made things better. Uh, you know, falling violence, falling drug use, falling teen pregnancy, all these things made things better. We're on the upswing uh, and the kids are OK. The kids are doing all right. And now I just feel like that all disintegrated. You know, it's even worse than it was when I was a kid in many ways. Um you know, teen pregnancy is still down, but like, you know, most of the other stuff like suicides way up and, you know, drug use way up and, and anyway, so things got worse. And so that's, that's why I'm, I'm kind of interested in, in how we hit on that magic formula in that short era when kids were happy. 
Right. And and you sort of alluded to some of the elements that may or may not go into human happiness or, or teen happiness. It sort of seems like you need to first figure out what are the most important categories that would determine a generation's relative happiness or unhappiness. And then kind of we can argue over how well those things were met. Like, for example, if, uh, you know, everybody always talks about the the baby boom and then the generation after that, a bunch of kids had access, their, their family had some money, they had cars, they had freedom, they could go out and they could go neck at the lookout point or, or, or something. So uh, what is necking? What, what does that mean? Uh, like kissing on the neck? I... I think it was a euphemism for first through second base, which I don't know. I don't. I don't, the, I don't know if the bases have actually I'm a basketball guy. I don't know if the bases are standardized uh, <laughs> across uh, generations and and regions and stuff. I think it was. Right. It, well, we'll let necking be a mystery. I, I, I believe. Just, I believe necking sounds sounds sexual. Sounds it, oh, it's definitely naughty. sexual, but I think necking is any anything goes above the waist. Otherwise, I don't think you can simply say <laughs> above that you the two, waist. I got it. And yet, got that it. you two were, were merely necking. So, like, I'm just I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm being a little obtuse here. For example, if there was one generation that had a bunch of money for some reason. But at the same time, there was uh, the looming imminent specter of nuclear annihilation, even more so than it has been, you know, consistently since the 40s. Would they be happy because they could buy lots of video games or would they be sad because they all thought that they were going to to die tomorrow? What do you think are the like because it would be easy to speculate? Well, kids are a little soft in the head and whenever you get a little you know you get another JFK to a certain extent Clinton an Obama you get a bunch of posters hope change these big bright seeming things that say everything and nothing at the same time do you think it was this like overall air of optimism that was in our society or do you think that there are more concrete indicators that would just be well kids are always happy when they when there's new Doritos flavors Concrete indicators and not Doritos flavors. Okay. I think um, one thing you saw was a big drop in violence. Mm -hmm. uh, in the that that started around 1991 to three. Um, that there was a big drop in violence and it bottomed out around 2013, 2014. 2013 was kind of the most peaceful year, I think, in terms of violence. And so, uh, and then it started rising again. Um, but then, so that drop in violence was important. Um, I feel like uh, drugs were a big deal because um, most drugs will make you unhappy. Like marijuana won't, but like, you know, if you do opiates or st heavy stimulants as a kid, that will screw you up your brain and you will be unhappy, especially when you're off it. Right. And I know a lot of people who did that. You know, people at my, my school were on heroin, uh, you know, whatever, uh, meth. And, um, at my high school, even my junior high. And, um, and this was not a bad school at all. This was a really good school. You know, we won all the math competitions and whatever. So, um, you know, so I can only imagine how much worse it would be at a school that's very like sort of you know, poor working class, whatever. It was bad. And, um, drugs will mess you up. Hard drugs will mess you up. Um, it's because there's, you know, massive come down and they burn out your pleasure centers and all these blah, blah, blah. And so I think that there was a lot of progress made against hard drugs in the like late 90s and 2000s we made a lot of progress in getting kids not to do the hard drugs and i think to some degree they've gone back to that i mean obviously fentanyl's a big deal but i think just uh you know drugs have made a resurgence like hard drugs have made a resurgence among kids 
um, uh, you know, opiates and, uh, and stimulants, you know, those, those hard drugs that really mess up your brain have made a big comeback. Um, psychedelics have made like a small comeback and I'm happy about that. Uh, cause I do like psychedelics, but then, um, uh, and, and, you know, weed, whatever, but, but, um, no, it's, it's really the, the stimulants and the opiates that are the big, the big problem. Those make kind of a comeback. Um, uh, so those are some quantitative indicators, I think. Um, other, but but I also think that the really the when you look at the timing and how around it's right around 2010 that happiness starts to go down. It's still decent in like 2011, 12, 13. It's like, but it's it's headed down. It's headed the wrong way, and then it it absolutely crashes by the end of the decade. And I think you've got to look at the smartphone. The introduction of the smartphone is the big factor here. It's just. It's so obvious nothing else really happened in 2010. Um, uh, the, you know, I, I guess, I guess it's not even true that economic prospects got so much worse because by the end of the, by the end of the 2010s, you know, economic prospects were actually good uh, again, um, or as, as good as they've ever been actually. And so, um, so I think that you look at what happened in 2010, Steve Jobs comes out with a smartphone, the iPhone comes out and suddenly instead of going to friends' houses, suddenly, I mean, it took a few years for it to, to permeate, right? For it to reach everybody. But kids replaced all their cars with phones. And, so, you know, instead of going to your friend's house and hanging out, you'd chat and you, or, or maybe FaceTime, whatever. But then like, it's a usually just text and it's a very attenuated medium. You know, it's, you're not, you do not get as much inner human interaction via a screen as you do via hanging out. And yet it's so much easier to do that, to just chat wherever you are, just open it up and chat that it begins to substitute for in-person interaction. I think. And you, in fact, you did see this. You saw in the data, in the survey data, kids were hanging out in person less and chatting a lot more on their phones. And at the same time, uh, smartphones enabled social media to be ubiquitous. So instead of Facebook being something you occasionally checked, you were you always had these notifications. You were always like on the hook. To Facebook, then to Instagram, then TikTok, um, and maybe Twitter if you're a weirdo. Um, Snapchat, maybe I don't know, but um, these, uh, especially the public social media ones like uh, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, you're always seeing people. You know, everybody talks about um, how on like Facebook and then Instagram, you'd see people having so much fun. Everybody's having so much fun. You'd be and you'd be down in the dumps because you felt like you couldn't compare. Um, there's also the, the idea of never, never truly being alone. So you're never with, you're not with other people physically, you're not fully with other people, but you're also not alone. It's like everyone else in your life is a ghost. that's just watching you all the time. That's not healthy. That's not what we evolved to deal with. You know, that's not, we, we evolved for in-person interaction. We didn't evolve to have everybody else be like this little digital ghost that's watching you, but not giving you like companionship and comfort, but simply just watching you to see if you mess up or you say the wrong thing, uh, you know, and you'll get canceled. Or if you, you know, like, what does your away message say about your mood or whatever? And like, just this con being constantly watched, but never with other people. So, you know, in, in 2008 or whatever, or in 1994, you would go, you're a kid, and you'd go and, you know, you'd either drive, or if you couldn't drive, you'd have someone drive you, or maybe you just bike or walk, you know, to your friend's house, and then hang out with the friends, or at some communal gathering space, like a coffee house, or a rock club, or a park, or, you know, whatever. 
um, and you'd go there and you'd hang out with people. And then when, when you were with your people, the other people weren't watching. Now the other people are always watching. Social media, but they're not sm with you. Smartphones, yeah. drugs. Uh, I, I I follow. I'm curious to know. Uh, I you, I'm sure you got a lot of replies and feedback from. I, I'm sure you got professional feedback on that. But I'm almost more interested in knowing. Did you? I'm sure you heard from a lot of people who said, yeah, "Of course, yeah, smartphones are the devil." I knew that. You know. Um, uh, did did you hear things back from people who saw your tweet who? said things that surprised you in a way that you found provocative. No, not <laughs> at all. And the, the reason is because um, there's a lot of people yelling about what they think this ought to be causing this trend and not a lot of people doing a deep dive into what does cause it, hmm. which is why Derek Thompson's uh, article today is so good because he actually does a deep dive into what's actually causing this stuff. Um, it's easy to wave your hands at politics and say like, um, you know, like Obama posters or whatever. But I don't know that kids care that much. I mean, people were happiest during the, um, you know, people were pretty happy during the Obama years, but they were kids were pretty happy during the like late Bush years as well. And so, like, you know, and if there was one one uh, president who did not represent hope and change, George W. Bush, right? Um, and so, so I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I'm not sure I would. Uh, I'm I'm not so quick to lay the blame on like national politics. Like I, I, I do. No, no I, actually, I, I didn't mean that exactly. I, I guess there's a sort of. Um, at times, it feels like there, there, there's, uh, there might be a national mood, and that, um, uh, you know, but politics is such a funny thing. And I, you said you're a basketball person. You know this with coaches. There's coaches who seem like bums at two jobs, and then all of a sudden, right place, right time, right players, right everything. And then all of a sudden, that same person looks like a genius. You know, there's all these people who are sort of hovering around right now for the Republican nomination who seem, it seems like a, a joke to think that f five of them could have any chance, but we've all seen the winds can shift and all of a sudden this, you know, as, as they, as I think Harry Truman said, some men are born for greatness and other have greatness thrust upon them. I don't necessarily see uh, to, to, to go back to Obama as one example, him as necessarily shaping the national mood as being the right candidate for the right time, because he fit this sort of national mood of, of optimism and bearing in mind, of course, that whoever wins for president lost, yeah. four, lost 47% of the vote. Right. Sure. And, and, you know, I mean, like, obviously having Trump in the White House did contribute to this overall era of anger. You know, that, that sounds fair. And so I think, um, you know, I, I, I guess maybe I do underestimate the, the importance of like presidents as symbols of national mood. And, you know, I don't really know how they affect it versus are affected by it. Right. You know, it's, pe people were really angry before Trump, you know, people were angry in 2015. Um, people were angry in 2016. There was there were terrorist attacks, mass shootings, um, some riots. Uh, like people were just mad, you know. And I remember the tone online became increasingly mad. So it was it was years before it really started in 2014. So I'd say years, three years before Trump won the election, our country was already roiled by anger, and it reminds you of a lot of things that happened in the late 1960s. Oh, for sure. Oh, it, I I think it's I think it's 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 such without the hippies. So here's I, well, but no, but, if, but but we but we do we do yeah. have the hippies. Tell me, tell me what people who make their living stoking 
Republican, you know, wants, needs, and fears. Tell me how their rhetoric is different than anything that would have been said about college campuses in the 1960s. It's 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 the exact same thing. Well, it's not, but but they're just what, wearing, they're just wearing what, different clothes. The, the hippies, right? What what hippies are doing, what what kids are doing, is not defined by what Republicans, angry old Republicans, think they're doing, and it never has been. Um, there's a gulf, a world, a vast ocean of difference between those two things. Um, so I think that there's several differences. The, the peace and love movement. So, so one thing is that the anti-war movement corresponded with a lot of other things. So urban unrest and riots, um, and, you know, racial conflict in the late sixties, that was there, but I would say that that was overpowered even, not even overpowered, but overshadowed in some sense by the anti-Vietnam war movement. Um, those two things coexisted, I would say. It, maybe it's not overshadowing is the wrong word. Uh, I would say those coexisted, but I'd say if if you ask people to define one political thing that defined that era, it's Vietnam, right? Sure, sure. Um, I'm sorry, finish and your And for thought. us, mm -hmm. that anti-war movement came a decade earlier. Okay, fair enough. What I'm saying, the, the link that I see between hippies and, I fucking hate how this word's been co-opted, but you know, mm. for lack of, it's a one syllable and it's convenient. What woke you know movements uh, are woke. i'll it, say woke yep is it's utopianism it's hippies hippies thought we could throw away the entire sum total of human history and if we could all just love each other we could solve all the problems young people today and the people who are following their lead are saying that we can sort of undo lots and lots of deeply entrenched very complicated problems in a, in a short space of time if we all just get with the the program they're very very different but i think the motivating animus is identical well okay so i think um what i would say is that um all movements have a utopian component to them right sure and also i think that when you talk about wokeness it's not a new thing and i think this is what people don't understand you got to read people have to read more uh wokeness what we call wokeness now uh you know and which was called wokeness for a brief time in the mid 1800s uh, yeah no the um the uh there was a group called the wide awakes oh right which, there's the great awakening sure why not that well the, there was the great awakening which was christianity but what people don't understand is a lot of that christianity was explicitly abolitionist right and yeah. not just abolitionist but wanted to do prison reform and a bunch of other you know things that they didn't have call it utopian yet but it was very you know sort of like uh, uh idealistic and progressive and so but then you had the um and, and eventually the the term was radical republicanism you know the radical republicans in congress this is before republican changed to mean conservative but this was when Republican meant liberal. And so then the the radical Republicans were like, let's take maximum immigration from China. Yes. You know, let's be a nation of all races and things like that. Of course, they, they had a lot of victories during during and right after the Civil War. They pushed through the 14th Amendment and things like that. But um, but yeah, they were they were all on board for this. And then, you know, uh, uh, 10 years after the Civil War wiped out, gone. But before the Civil War, you had decades of this sort of massive roiling movement for abolition for social reform in, in many ways and you had these people who called themselves the wide awakes because they you know they they realized the injustice that was in the world they could see everyone else was sleeping everyone else couldn't see the injustice they could see the injustice it was the exact same thing and um yeah and and also it was a you know essentially a bunch of white kids who went to sermons by black preachers and you know, and, and then wanted to uh, free the slaves and solve all the rest of humanity's problems, et cetera. And so 
this this thing we call wokeness is not new. It is it is it has new elements from the modern times. There you know there's different slightly different flavor, different wording, you know, some a few different coalitions, but basically fundamentally it's an old thing in America and I think in the 60s we had another eruption of it. You know, we had another efflorescence of that of wokeness in the 60s. Well, right. So it's not a new thing, but it is something that tends to sort of ebb and and flow. It, at times, it's it, it pushes itself to the center of the national conversation, and at at times less so. So it, to say that it's a that right. it's exactly. consistently there is a little bit misleading because no, no, it it comes and goes. It's like um, yeah, it's it's like it it reemerges and then it that it falls back asleep. Right. And so, right. Well, let's talk, wakes up. let's talk about an analogies, metaphors for wokeness, because this leads me to one of your uh, one of your blog posts on your Substack. To me, I've thought of let's call it social justice movements. As the, the analogy that comes to mind to mind for me is World War One trench warfare. You have the two sides that are sort of fixed, and it's very very hard to really substantially move. You know, they talk about what was it the 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 one big awful um, front in World War One that you know a million lives were lost and the Western it, Front, and it moved fifteen feet the entire time. It just seems like everybody's sitting there, yep. they're angry at each other every now and again for some reason or another. There's enough energy and enthusiasm that one front makes a charge at the other and maybe just maybe the line moves a little bit. And I think that what you would see is the, the America, if you look at the scope of a couple centuries, has become more socially just. The 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 oh, yeah. the progressive people are are moving it. It's that's what yeah. that's what it feels like to me. It's the front of trench warfare and 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 both sides are or or it's or it's a you know, a, a, a football game played in snow. It's just two lines trying to push each other back and forth a little bit. You prefer the analogy of a prairie fire. Why is that? So the analogy of a prairie fire, that, so we're, we're talking about analogies for two different things. Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right that in, in the long term, we've got this, this you know, sort of long-term, mostly static conflict with occasional, uh, you know, breakthroughs. But uh, and not just, you know, not just in the progressive direction. We've had times in America has become less progressive over for decades and decades, you know, like um, the, the late 70s and 80s were a time when America became less progressive in many ways. Right. Um, and so uh, and would have become even more so had Ronald Reagan not, uh, you know, arrested that movement. But that's a very minority opinion on my part um, <laughs> that I get yelled at a lot for. But anyway, so. Um, but. Yeah, but but so the prairie fire is different. The prairie fire analogy is about how uh, woke ideas uh, spread, you know, throughout uh, American society in each of these eruptions, right? And so, um, you know, you talked about this static conflict, and I think that is there. But I think that that woke energy erupts every maybe every fifty years. Um, it's it's on about there's not an exact clock, but if if you had to look at it, you'd say probably about fifty years. Um, and so that energy erupts. And when it erupts, it begins among intellectuals and among young people like college kids and among you know media people who are at the cutting edge of media. You know, you had like the abolitionist newsletters and newspapers back in the day. and you had uh, anyway, so it it's among intellectuals, media and and kids and and, you know, Maybe a few radical academics, but mostly the the academics are sort of a lagging factor. Uh, they're they're old and slow and boring. But um, but then that's where it starts, and those ideas 
ferment. You know, everybody's going to meetings and everybody's yeah having these meetups and discussing radical new things. And there's street activism and protests and fights in the street and blah, blah, blah. And that's how it starts. And then eventually that um, that burns out that fervor burns out and people say, okay, well, you know, we went a little too far here and I'm just tired of doing activism here. And our, you know, we, we had too much internal conflict in these groups there. And so then it tires out at the center. Um, and I can give you many examples of how that's happened here, but then these ideas spread out. And when I say to the periphery, what I mean is to institutions and, and cultural spaces that are usually slow to change. So for example, Columbia med school, right? Stodgy, old, boring institution just changed their oath. And all the anti-woke people were yelling about this on Twitter. They changed their their oath of incoming med students to say, we're going to stand up for repressed peoples and blah, blah, blah. Some, you know, woke sounding lip service and blah, blah, blah. Columbia Med School is like a stodgy old institution. And they're not doing it incredibly well. Like they're, they're not, their, their woke lingo is not what, you know, a kid in a, a very plugged in college kid in 2015 would have designed right um it's it's awkward and it sounds like a, a committee full of old people stuck it in there and and yet they're you know so the the anti-woke people like you know your chris rufos and your wes yangs are are focusing on that and they're yelling about that and they're trying to fight that but that's at the trailing edge of culture some school boards in iowa you know or arkansas are fighting over wokeness let me tell you that school boards in Iowa and Arkansas are not the burning hot center of American radical culture. All right. That is boring old people imitating some ideas, you know, sort of clumsily implementing some ideas that are fresh and new to them, but were are are old to all the people who are in the know. So where are all the all the stuff that the rest of us are just starting to get tired of arguing about here on the periphery? What are the people with their finger on the pulse of things, what are they arguing or no longer arguing about? Well, it's, it's hard to say because um, there's not there's not like a set amount of ferment and uh, and and unrest sure. and radicalism at the center of American culture. Like sometimes it's pretty quiescent, and sometimes it's not. I would what say that. Oh, sorry. What does quiescent mean? Uh, like sleepy. Oh, I see. Um. So like sometimes you know back in like two thousand. Uh, back in 2006 or five or something like, you know, kids would like protest the Iraq war and that was important. And they protest for gay rights. Uh, but then I think that there was less of a, uh, an urge to experiment with new lifestyles and to overturn society in general. There were those specific causes, but there was less sort of, um, you know, burning need to kind of change the whole world, uh, upend the whole world. And right. I think that, yeah. And so, so there's not always like the set amount of, of stuff, but I'd say that um, right now, uh, personal stuff. So, so we can bring it back to the, uh, the teenage depression. I would say that how to live a good life and how to live a happy life and stop being so depressed all the time and upset and sad. I shouldn't say depressed because it's something slightly different, which I've had, but, uh, but you know, how, how not to be so down all the time, I think is a, is a thing that a lot of young people are thinking about. And there's arguments about like, Go to therapy. Well, what you're saying is not actually the recommendations of what therapy recommends. And why don't you have any friends? And, you know, people are dealing with the the fact that, like, kids don't really have sex much anymore. And um, uh, the conservatives of my youth would be very happy about the fact that kids stopped having sex. But then... Yeah, and instead they're angry. I know. 
You yeah, can, they're you angry. Can, like, you why don't you have to? You can't make these people happy. I know you can't please them. No, you cannot make these people happy. Right. Um, because fu- fundamentally, their unhappiness comes from their own social isolation in their like suburban communities. But that's a story for another day. Anyway, and you know, anyway, right? Um, yeah. So, so in in intellectual spaces, there's uh, like you know the the pundits, my my crowd, right? Um, we're starting to talk a lot about international conflict. And this is an unfortunate. So, so one thing I should mention, by the way, is that unrest wasn't America specific. In no. 2019, you saw protests all over the world, everywhere: Catalonia, Hong Kong, Chile. It's it's bizarre. It's actually Iran, Nicaragua. Bizarre. The similarities across the board that Boris Johnson's got Donald Trump's hair, and Brazil's got their own Q shaman. It's eerie. It's frankly, yeah. I'm not a we live in a simulation guy, but there's plenty of. Uh, if you want to get stoned and actually try to make that argument, you got plenty of grist. It's almost as if everyone reads the same internet. And and yet, I know, I know, of course, of course, of course, but there, it's, it's, it's in the thirties. There was the same shit. Um, no, you're absolutely right. The fast, the fascists were kind of ridiculous in in, in the fascists. And and before that, the, the progressive social movements in like the twenties, like, um, you know, suffragettes. Uh, in in Britain, like bombing buildings and burning things. Yeah, I guess right. Yeah, I mean, you know the, the revolution, you know, France sneezed in Europe, caught the cold thing. Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Um, so so the, there is there is ideological contagion, and in the internet, it just moves a little faster. Right. Right. It might take three years, then takes three months now. Right. But like right. whatever. So so yes, there was global unrest, and we can sit around and talk about why global unrest happened when it did and we could bullshit and I can throw some hypotheses out there. Um, but it, it happened. And one thing about global unrest that you see pretty consistently is that it's followed by geopolitical conflict between the great powers. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, it's not necessarily, it doesn't seem intuitive to me. Why, why, why is that? Or why do we think that might be? I don't a hundred percent know. I can give you a, you know, I can, I mean, I can give you big historical theories. Right. Um, but like, you know, the, the theory is that uh, governments clamp down on unrest. Governments try to divert the unrest by fighting each other. Governments threatened by the unrest attempt to redirect the, the unrest to foreign enemies. I understand. I mean, wouldn't it just be a little That's bit, an idea. A, a little bit more. Uh... Another idea is that fractured societies feel a need to unite. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to unite is to unite against an ex- external enemy. Sure, there's that. Both of those things sound fine, but I think even more uh, uh, practical uh, is just that when things get a little chaotic, people uh, install they get you know they they get cold feet and they install a bunch of law and order leaders. And when you have a bunch right. of law and order leaders and all the world right. powers, they're you know these are as they say they're run by a bunch of uh, of of. You know, jackbooted thugs. Yeah, exactly. And those people—it's only a matter of time before they uh, set their sights on one another. So let's let's talk about. There is a bit of that. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's a plausible hypothesis as well. And so I think that essentially, you know, if you people don't realize that the '70s uh, and and early '80s were a time of great geopolitical conflict. We sort of remember these movies like War Games. You know, um, I don't even was I even alive when that came out. Anyway, we uh, we remember these movies uh, like War Games. Yep. Um, I saw, you know, I saw, where, I saw like, it in the theater. I don't want to brag, but. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, you know, the only winning move is not to play nuclear right. war bristling with these these nukes. And that wasn't always there. Right. Like in the in 
fifties when they did duck and cover, uh, there were only a few nukes compared to how there many there were in like the night, the 1980s. Like there were many more nukes in the 1980s because of the buildup of the late seventies. So after, you know, sort of America lost the Vietnam war and looked vulnerable. And then the Soviet union started under Brezhnev started making advances and sort of trying to, you know, they, they were riding high on oil revenues because the oil shock and they're trying to push into a bunch of places. Um, and ultimately they went too far in Afghanistan and got burned. But, um, but, uh, although uh, that was, that was a little later, but then, um, the, the sort of, um, yeah, the, in the, in the seventies, the Soviet Union was on the march and a bunch of people thought communist revolutions inevitable. And they were so confident that they even fought with China. You know, there was dissension among the communist camp, which allowed us to eventually make a pseudo alliance with China. Um, right. And so. Yeah. So there's all this stuff, and then we we forget about this because we didn't actually fight the USSR, right? We didn't actually fight, which is no. good because we're still here. Otherwise, you and I would not be here. We'd be we'd be we'd not exist. We'd be dead. And so, um, but we didn't fight, and that was good. But it was a time of geopolitical conflict. We almost had World War III in the late '70s and early '80s. And in fact, there was this one false alarm where if this guy hadn't said in the Soviet guide and said Stanislav Petrov, he said, "I think this is a false alarm. Let's not launch the nukes." We would have incinerated the world. And so thanks, Stanislav Petrov, you saved humanity. Um, that was pretty crazy. It was it almost got crazier than World War II itself. But then right. um I think I think that's just sort of a natural human thing is we all we just can only keep so many things straight in our heads. So you mm. oversimplify stories on on things is you know right. we beat the Nazis, so the Nazis were never actually gonna win. We that we nobody ever fired the nukes, so kind of sort of the Cold War was just this great big you know, yeah. pissing match that was never going to come to anything. And in re the reality was, of course, far more fraught and far more complicated than that. Yeah. That segues somewhat neatly into another thing that you've posted about recently, which is the current face of and the current momentum of anti-globalization. It seems like without, I, I think it's sort of an under-remarked upon thing, at least among the people that I interact with and the sorts of things that I read that, there, there, there's not a lot of consensus in our political world, but some sort of whoa, whoa, whoa. We've, we've opened our, we've really opened Pandora's box with being in bed with every country in the world that can manufacture things cheaper than us. Uh, maybe okay. We're not going to say you guys who warned us about that were right, but yeah, you guys were kind of, you're kind of right. It's, it's much, but it's much, right. yeah, it's much easier to identify that issue than it is to figure out how a country might uncouple itself um, from every nation in the world that can manufacture things cheaply. And of course, this is code for China, although it's not just China, especially in a system where we expect a president to keep um, you know, our economy r humming and we evaluate them on how well they're doing with that every like two and a half years, you know? Um, I have my, my, my wife manufactures, my wife has a, a clothing line and I've talked to her a lot about, you know, well, China and this mm -hmm. and that. And she's just like, bro, we're not getting out of China. Like it's everything that you're clothing saying. Clothing companies are, are getting out of China. They're going to Bangladesh. They, they are, and they aren't like and Vietnam. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, and I know people who manufacture in, in Vietnam. Okay, I think China's lost about half its clothing industry. Okay, that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm hearing over my uh, kitchen table. I, I frankly kind of hope that you're right. Which I mean, is, there's there's still a lot of people manufacturing China, but yeah, the cut labor costs have gone up so much. And and clothing, you're looking at a lot of labor costs. You're looking at clothing is their classic like 
warehouse full of people at desks putting stuff together, right? Oh, for sure. People forget then, that. You're close. It, somebody, some, and... if people think like, because you get stuff at Target that it came out of a microwave. Somebody probably like actually stitched it. Stitched that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's a crazy And then, thing. no, no, Bangladesh, Vietnam and Bangladesh are really taking over the garment industry uh, from China. But that's not a, it's not a very important strategic industry. Right. Um, so what, man. now that we, as I say, having a consensus in theory about being overextended in terms of, you know, the global supply chain, say, um, how, how, if at all, does that relate to the formation of a feasible action plan that we either could follow as a nation or perhaps are already starting to follow? Well, okay. So companies, um, the main, most important thing that we import from China is electronics. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't import like a bunch of cars, um, airplanes, tractors, refrigerators. We don't, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to ship that heavy stuff in the first place. We we buy electronics from China and we buy almost all we buy 80 percent or more of our electronics from China. Um, now, some of that's that's in terms of final export. You know, China does re-export like China will sometimes import components from like Malaysia and Japan and Korea and Taiwan, slap them together and then export them to us. And then the whole thing gets counted as a Chinese export when, in fact, most of the value was created in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, and so that there is that. Uh, but but we you know, we import a lot of our electronics from China. And think about this. If there's a war with China over Taiwan and I don't mean a nuclear, you know, end the world apocalyptic blah, blah, blah war. I just mean like couple of air aircraft carriers suited each other like a couple of missiles or planes or whatever right there's a there's an active military conflict between the United States and China if that happens where where is Apple's production then where are the iPhones coming from are, will iPhone production simply continue even as war happens no that will shut down really quick the iPhone factories you know China will be nope you know, we, we're stopping you. We're halting this. And they'll do it as pressure to try to get us to back off. And they'll do it as just sort of a punishment to hurt our economy. And they'll do these things. And then they'll they'll shut, take those workers and put them into defense industries or something. And so then production just will dry up immediately. You'll have a massive production interruption. It'll be worse than COVID. Um, and so the question is, do you want to leave yourself exposed to that? Right? How much do you want to expose yourself to that risk? Like you can say, well, you know, I mean, maybe uh, Bangladesh should be cheaper, but then I have to think about it. And then I have to establish local contacts and I have to think about where to site the factory and I have to learn this other culture and blah, 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 all the switching costs. Right. Like, why would I switch my factory from China to Bangladesh? Or if you're talking about electronics, why would I switch my factory from China to Malaysia, to Vietnam, to Indonesia, to wherever or, or even a high cost country like Taiwan? Where would I where would I shift my production? I have to think about it. And so it's easier to just sit on your ass and stay in China. Right. It's easier to just do nothing and stay in China. But now you've got to think about existential risk for your company. If all your productions in China and and there's a war, even a small war, your production is gone in a day, you know, and then and it just it's just gone. And so. Apple is scared shitless because that's an existential risk for Apple. What if nobody could buy an iPhone? Nobody could buy a Mac or an iPad or, or whatever. Like you just couldn't get it. You know, maybe people would be like, well, I need a phone this month. I will buy an Android. And then a whole bunch of people switch to Android, you know, where the where the suppliers are like more distributed around the world. There's like Samsung makes his phones in Vietnam. Right. And so you'll be like, OK, well, you know what? iPhone, whatever. I would like an iPhone, but uh, instead I'll get an Android. 
And then where does Apple's like sort of brand loyalty go? Everyone says, oh, well, the Android's actually just as good as the iPhone. Why am I paying $300 more for this iPhone than for a similarly functional Android? And um, everyone gets used to the little green bubbles in their chats, right? And so, um, and then, and then it's gone. So, so it's this existential risk for Apple. So Apple's going to, you know, they're going to pull some people out of China. In fact, it, it takes a long time and it's hard, but they're putting a lot of their production into India and Vietnam now. So to kind of macro it out a little bit, when we talk about globalization, it, it's you pretty much were just saying China, but that's the, I don't want to say clear and present danger. That's the clear and present concern what what alternatives you know we're not bringing all the factory jobs back to the heartland that's not going to happen nor probably should no. it it can't either because if we get manu we should try to get manufacturing back but it'll be mostly robots right well there's that too so maybe we'll talk about robots that. great maybe we'll we talk love about robots. that as, as as well if we have time but what it, okay put it this way what in your opinion ought to happen if you had the the next three administrations ears on uh, in, in regard to our approach to globalization in terms of uh, a, a durable supply chain without geopolitical ickiness that's also ultimately financially beneficial to Main Street America. We see the problems everywhere we look with all of the all of the available options that I know of. What's the what's the good way forward here? Oh, the uh, the good way is called friendshoring, and basically means that instead of having a factory in China, we have a factory in India. Are we we're, we're okay with their prime minister? I mean, maybe so, but I I don't know. Like people argue back and forth about him. Yeah. Um, but uh. You know, certainly the the reason we're the reason we're worried about China stuff is not its internal human rights. I mean, yes, people are mad about like, oh, Uyghurs, you put Uyghurs in a bunch of concentration camps and that sucks. Yeah. Um, you know, but but like. Once upon a time, we were that bad. Right. Right. So what you're saying. And so, we, you know, we, we, like, we, we don't need to like it's India. Not, it's, it's not China's human rights record. People yeah. that that gives that puts a bad taste in people's mouth for sure. Right. right. When they see Hong Kong protesters getting crushed and Uyghurs being put in concentration camps and all the universal surveillance and blah, blah, blah. We know we know that China is like generally some bad, nasty uh, regime. But the real reason why we're in danger of war is more about geopolitics. It's about the fact that China wants to, uh, you know, upend the order in East Asia. And basically it no one people don't use the word, but they want to, you know, dominate and conquer places. Um, and India is also threatened by that. They they claim part of India. They have regular bloody clashes with India. Um, they're building military infrastructure to be able to quickly take Indian territory. They insist that part of India gets displayed on the map as part of China by like ESPN. And so, so India is under threat and that makes us a natural ally for India. Also, whatever you think of India's, you know, prime minister, whether he's a good guy or not, he's democratically elected and India is a democracy. And, uh, you know, I don't think we should be allies with only democracies, but when a country is democratic, I think even if they elect a guy we don't like, a guy we, a guy I think is a bad guy, even if they elect a guy we don't like, you know, democracy fundamentally is important because we've, you know, that's like saying like, oh, you wouldn't want to ally with America because they have Trump. 
Right, 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 right. Yeah, well said. Okay, but uh, that I, I accept that answer. Um, I I don't want to keep you more than an hour, and there's at least one more thing I really do want to ask you. Let's about. do it. Let's go. So right, okay. So there you go. There's a plot. I'm trying to think. What are like the great, great issues of our day that you know? I got kids. I care about the kind of world that I'm uh leaving for them. I don't know why I'm saying that with a sarcastic tone. I actually really do. So there's one. Yeah. Great. There's there's a there's a plausible path forward. Of course, none of it matters. Where we manufacture things won't matter at all. If we make the planet that we live on uninhabitable, you retweeted a retweet about the U.S.'s plan to become a green energy superpower. I don't want to read too much into it, but the person who retweet you retweeted used a bunch of emojis with like uh, bald eagles and American flags. And I took those to be somewhat sarcastic. In case you don't recall, I'll, I'll actually read. Uh, oh, shit. I thought I'd copied and pasted the actual tweet. I'm assuming you have uh, some sort of familiarity with the... Oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. Revolution is underway in sectors including solar, nuclear, carbon capture, and green hydrogen. Goals are profound. Rejuvenate countries. Rust Belt. Decarbonize world's biggest economy. And wrest control of energy supply chains from China. It's ambitious. Uh, is this... Do we have a plausible plan for this? Or are you scoffing at... Um, such grandiose rhetoric for something that will certainly never come to pass. Well, no, I mean, the grandiose rhetoric is grandiose yeah. and it's, it's not going to, the, the final outcome is not going to be as dramatic as like the stuff we write on paper. Right. Uh, but it's going to be big, you know, like, um, so this is real. This you actually are saying this is underway. It's real. It's not, it's not as big as the hype, uh, would have you believe, okay. but then nothing ever is. Sure. And, um, we are going to go in all those directions. There's going to be substantial things happening in all those directions. You won't look back and say, wow, the world is entirely changed unless there's like a bigger shock like a war. But you will go, you know, oh, I guess things are kind of different now. Like things things have become different. You know, in in um, in 2012, everything was made in China. In 1992, it was not. That was a pretty big change. Yes. Right. So, and uh, And so these, you know, fairly big changes can happen. Right now, uh, everybody's building renewable energy. 10 years ago, nobody was building renewable energy. And that's a, that's a change, you know, like cars are about to go electric. That's a real change, right? You're going to, you're not going to have to go to gas stations anymore. Maybe when you take a long trip, you will. Yeah. Or you have to stop at the dumb thing and wait in line at the, that, that, the Elon Musk Mart, which is right. But, but almost you, you almost never will because you, you're almost never going to hit your range within a day and you'll charge at night at your house. Right. And so, your car will be like full up in the morning magically, automatically, and then you won't have to go to the gas station ever unless you're on a long trip. Right, right, right. I mean, that's kind of I, I, that's got, cool, right? I, I got two electric cars through this wall over here. Yeah, it is. There you it, go. Do, do you know it's what? Pretty awesome. It is cool. It is cool. Do you know how much I miss the gas station? Not very much. No, not very no. much at all. Um, and you'll I still get to have your occasional like you know highway gas station rest stop. Sure. Uh, and and that honestly that was fun. Going to like your little like mini Martin eating some chicken nuggets or whatever and like seeing like the rando people of small towns. Hell yeah. That was nice. That was fun. We'll still get to do that. Jerky never tasted so sweet. No. Yeah, it's true. Um, little mini donuts, little mini powdered donuts. You're speaking my yeah. language, Noah. All right. I'm going to I'm gonna let you go. We've you've given us a lot to, to, to think about here, um, but it kind of is the tip of your content iceberg. Uh, you can be found at... It took me a second to get it. No opinion. Ah, very nice. I swear That's to right. God. And I'm... there's no there's no O in the middle there. 
It's just no Noah, opinion. No opinion. Right. There's a lot of people like Noah opinion. I'm like, that's not a pun. That doesn't make a pun. I I was guilty. It's just no opinion. No, I, it took me a second, and now I've got it, and now I'll never forget it. Your no opinion on Substack, and even more immediately, people can go right now to Twitter. I you are like the most prolific tweeter I think I have ever encountered. If you are telling people that phones are the root of all emotional health evil, I think you should consider taking your own advice there. Oh, the the only antidote is to get a rabbit. Touche. Pet rabbit. You can find uh, more thought-provoking content and rabbits at Noah Pinion on Twitter. Thank you very much for your time and your insight, Noah Smith. Thanks so much for having me on.